is the World Vegan Travel Podcast, Season 4, Episode 17. I'm Bridie, one of the founders of World Vegan Travel Tours, and the World Vegan Travel Podcast is all about showing you how you might explore this world as a vegan. We do different types of episodes. We share our vegan travel experiences and the experiences of others to inspire you to get out into this beautiful world. And we conduct interviews with people doing amazing things to promote vegan travel, as well as individuals and organizations that are protecting human and non-human animals in a destination you could be visiting. So let's get right into it. In today's episode, we'll be talking to Nina Radcliffe. Nina is originally from the UK, but she has been living internationally now for more than 15 years. Now, that's a long trip. Of course, Nina has been working during that time. It hasn't just been a 15-year holiday, far from it. She has been working during that time as a teacher in an international school in Spain, Thailand, and now in Japan. Now, Nina is one of my very dearest friends and we became close when she went vegan when we both lived in Thailand. We worked together. I was a teacher in the same school and due to the very progressive nature of many members of the community there, there were lots of vegans and a lot of people that went vegan in the six years that I worked there. This was really around the time that Seaspiracy came out and teachers started realizing that meat has a very negative impact on the environment and it prompted a lot of conversations about animals and health as well. Now, Nina, a woman who is incredibly busy with a young family with so many passions, she just added being a passionate vegan to the list when she discovered the impact that diet can make on her planet, her health, and the animals. What can I say? She's a really special person, and I'm so grateful to have had her as a good friend during my time in Thailand. I've wanted to have Nina on the podcast for a long time because I wanted to have a conversation about international school teaching because I think it's a bit of a mystery to some. So basically, we're going to be talking about what international school teaching is like and how you might get into it because it really is an incredible way to see the world. During my time as an international educator, I was lucky enough to work in Vietnam where I wasn't even teaching there full time, but I first stumbled on this type of teaching as a possible career move. And I then got contracts in Thailand and then Indonesia and then back to Thailand again. And had World Vegan Travel not come along, I would probably be maybe still in Thailand working in the same school or perhaps living in another country by now, maybe somewhere in Europe. But not only did this experience of international school teacher help me develop so much as an educator It gave me some incredible opportunities and I made friends that I will remember and be in touch with for the rest of my life. So the intention of this podcast is to share our experience and observations of working as international school teacher. Perhaps you are a teacher or no one, or maybe you are deciding what you're going to do as your career for your professional life or looking to have a career change. If teaching is something that you're considering, maybe you would like to know a little bit more about international school teaching as a way to live around the world. 
But first, this podcast is sponsored by World Vegan Travel, the group tour company where vegan and vegan curious travelers can experience the best of vegan travel to some incredible and exotic destinations around the world. At the time of recording this little introduction, we are just about to head off to Italy, like a week today, actually. And by the time you listen to this, we will have finished our two trips to Italy. Hopefully you have been following us on social media and you kind of know what we've been up to. And even though we have finished the trips, you should still follow us on social media because Seb and I are still going to be in Italy catching up with some dear friends who coincidentally, are from my international school teaching days. Friends that I met when I was living in Hanoi a long time ago now, 2005. So there's going to be about seven of us. We're going to be spending time together and we'll be in Tuscany with them. I can't wait to see them. It's been way too long. And I'm so grateful that we're able to meet each other and see each other internationally. And we will be going back to Italy in 2023, running those same trips, one to Tuscany and one to Northern Italy with Colleen Patrick-Cadreau. So if you are interested, if there is still space available by the time this podcast goes to air, then you can book and join us on this trip. So if you are planning to go to Italy at some point, whether with Well Vegan Travel or another way, you will not want to miss some of the content we have created in recent months for vegan travellers to Italy. We've been creating a lot. So we have some blog posts entitled Vegan and Vegan Friendly Tours in Italy, Best Vegan City Food Tours Europe, of course there are some in Italy, and Handy Italian Language Guide for Vegan Travellers to Italy. So we've got three really relevant and helpful blog posts there. And we also have several podcast episodes. Season four, episode eight, Is Italy Really Vegan Friendly? That one is a conversation with Mano Venditti. We've got season three, episode five. So we're going back a little while now. Best Vegan Friendly Hotels in Italy. But that's with uh, Camilla that by the time you listen to this, I will have met up with her in Northern Italy. I'm so excited to see her again. And Luxury Vegan Hotels in Italy with Josh Thomas. That's a conversation with a one of the marketing team of the vegan hotels that we stay in when we are in Italy. So that might be interesting for you as well. There are lots of resources and destinations we talk about in this episode, so make sure you look at the show notes and the blog post for this episode to get all of the details. Let's chat with Nina. Hi, Nina. Thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Nice to be here. I am really excited to have a dear friend of mine on the podcast from way, way back when Seb and I were living in Bangkok. And we are going to be talking about what was my job then and what is still your job, which is international school teaching. And you definitely have got a lot of things to say about this, having done it for so many years. But before we get into all of that, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe like where you're from? and where you are now. Sure. Thanks for having me, Bridie. It's so nice to speak to you again. So my name is Nina, Nina Radcliffe, and I'm originally from the UK. And I trained to become a teacher after doing my um, university 
postgraduate degree and I taught briefly in the UK and then my husband and I really wanted to branch out and see the world and so we started international school teaching. I am currently in my 19th year of teaching, the majority of which has been international. I believe 17 out of those 19 years have have been in international schools. And where are you now? I'm currently based in Nagoya in Japan. Oh, okay. Fantastic. So you'd studied at university and then you went on to teach for a little while in the UK. Why is it that you decided to go international? So I met my husband at university and while he's British, he'd grown up in Spain and um, is bilingual and very much connected to his family and his life in Spain. And so he'd come over to university and we both did our teacher training in the UK. And we taught for a couple of years in the UK and he just wasn't loving it. You know, he had to commute a lot and just was missing Spain, was missing the sun and his friends and family. And so he'd actually gone to an international school as a teenager down in the south of Spain. And and so he had some connections and knew some teachers that were his teachers when he was a student. And he got in touch with them and they were really encouraging him and myself to go and teach in Spain. And so they, through connections of theirs, helped us get interviews and we were on our way. Wow. And I'd love it if you could explain like the difference between like international school teaching and teaching in a language school. I think a lot of people think that when you are a teacher in Thailand, Japan or something like that, that you're teaching maybe groups of small adults and you're teaching them them English. But that's really not what we're talking about here, is it? No, it's very different. And it's interesting because I I agree. I think there's a, a lot of kind of confusion and overlap there. So if you are a language teacher, you might have taken a course such as TEFL or TEFL, I never say it right, basically teaching you how to teach people English. And These are, like you say, small group language courses, maybe through a language school or something similar. And you can go to any country pretty much and you're teaching perhaps children or or adults uh, the English language. And it's a very different qualification and it's a very different set of expectations once you're working. Whereas if you're teaching an international school, you are a fully qualified teacher. Usually from your home country, you've done, um, for example, in the UK, you can do a PGCE, which is what I did. I did a one-year conversion course to teaching, or you can do the full three to four years of education degree. So you're a fully trained teacher, and it's similar to teaching in your home country in a private school. So it's not the bog standard school that you might go to for free in your home country. These international schools are private schools. So it's like teaching in your private school back in your home country, but you are international. And if you are an elementary or primary school teacher, like I am, you will teach the children everything. You'll teach them science and reading and writing and maths and all the other subject areas through the medium of English. So you're not just teaching the English language, you're teaching all of these subject areas as a normal homeroom teacher would through English. And of course, those international schools have other languages that they might teach the children too, but the majority of their day is through the English language. Mm. Okay, so you moved to Spain and how was that? How was your experience in Spain, both living there and uh, teaching there? Yeah, it's funny because it's such a long time ago now and I I look back on it and obviously realise all the areas I went wrong. <laughs> we weren't able to move back to my husband's hometown. He He's from a beautiful place called Nerja in the south of Spain, just east of Malaga. 
And there aren't so many international schools there. International teaching in Spain is a little bit special, and we can talk about that more in a little bit. But we managed to get jobs in a school called Soto Grande, which is near Gibraltar, near Algeciras, a lovely area too. And again, that was through a connection he had from one of his old teachers. And I arrived there with this romantic notion of, oh, wow, it's Spain. And, you know, my husband, Ian, is completely fluent. It'll be so easy. And there were a lot of bumps in the road. I don't drive. I've, I've never driven, learned to drive. I, I don't particularly like it. So, And it had never been a problem for me because I was usually in a city when I was back in the UK. So it was easy to get around in public transport. But when we moved to Spain, the area we were in, there was no public transport. So I was very reliant on my husband driving me around, which isn't always great for relationship dynamics. And I was, even though I'd learned Spanish, my Spanish was pretty good. It wasn't excellent, but it was okay. I was too shy to use it. And so I felt kind of isolated. We were in this little hilltop village called Jimena de la Frontera, which was very sweet and lovely, but a very old little white Spanish town in the hills. And I was lucky that there were so many teachers at the school that I could connect with. But they, at the time, we were kind of the youngest teachers and everyone else was in a different phase of their life. They were all having young children and, and that kind of thing. So yeah, I, I did find it a bit of a struggle initially, but I definitely cut my teeth in international teaching there. I learned a lot. Um, it was a small school, which I think is useful to experience a small school during your career. Um, it's very different to teaching in a large international school. So yeah, I learned a lot and got to meet some lovely people, but I don't think I appreciated being in Spain as much as I could have done. It was also kind of tricky because at the time, my husband and I were vegetarian. And at that point in time, I think this was 2005, being a vegetarian in Spain was a very foreign idea. And we unfortunately fell off the, the wagon of vegetarianism during our time in Spain, partly because I couldn't keep going out to nice restaurants and just ordering an omelet. You know, you, you couldn't even order a salad because there was either bacon bits or tuna on it, you know? So yeah, it was, it was a bumpy ride, but I, I loved it. And, and what's funny is we were only in Spain for three years, but the friends we made there are friends to this day. So it was a very close community. And I think that's one of the beauties of international teaching actually is the community that you build Mm, I would agree. I mean, I met such amazing people, including you, Nina, in, when I was in Bangkok and lots of other people as well. And they just become your family. You know, I have this instant social life, I find, when you teach at international schools. Absolutely. So you, so you then went on to move to Thailand. What is the normal process for getting a job in an international school? So if there is somebody who's listening that perhaps is a, a properly qualified teacher and would like to find out more or maybe to become an international school teacher, what would they need to do? So there are several organizations that you can join that will help you with that. One of the biggest is known as Search Associates. So you can join the Search Associates site and fill in your applications and so on. And they have lists of international schools where you can find all the information about that school, for example, how large the school is, the kind of package they offer, the curriculum that they provide. And they list the jobs available each year. And, and they have, before COVID, we had job fairs where you could travel globally and, and go and interview with these schools. In the last few years, these job fairs have been virtual. But uh, search is, is definitely one of the 
the companies to look for. There's another one called Schroll. I think you spell it S-C-H-R-O-L-E. And they, they do a similar thing. Some schools like to use a mixture of Schroll and Search Associates for different reasons. They offer slightly different sets of information on candidates. Then I think there are definitely, if you're a teacher based in the UK, for example, the Times Educational Supplement, the TES or TESS, they will often advertise jobs in their job section that are actually abroad as well. Or you can directly contact schools. Schools don't love that necessarily, but you can definitely go onto schools' websites. Maybe you've heard of a school that's well-known or that you'd like to go to, or you just want to search schools in a particular country, you can do some web searches and there's often a page on their website telling you about jobs you can apply for and you can contact them directly. Yeah, I went to one of these job fairs and it must be so different now doing it virtually, but I did, I went to one and got my job for Indonesia in 2013. And for those people listening, it's a four-day event, a three- or mm-hmm. four-day event. And I will say that it was kind of an emotional roller coaster. Mm. Like I started off putting all of my CVs in and expressing interest in certain positions and going back to my little mailbox and seeing interviews, requests, interview requests or not getting anything at all. Mm. And then you go into this big room on like the sign-up day and then you go and approach the schools that you're interested in and you've got like a minute to Mm. sort of promote yourself and hopefully they'll invite you for an interview. And then you have this interview and I remember like by about day three, I went to my search associates and I was literally crying, think, oh my (laughs) goodness, I'm not getting any love at all. This is just awful. And then the next day I had four job offers, I think to Mongolia and to Indonesia Mm -hmm. and Singapore. And I can't remember the fourth one, but all really interesting offers, which were just so wonderful. And, you know, I, I was living in Bangkok at that time with an, at another school, but going through that process was absolutely wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because it's quite a stressful situation. You know, they're primarily held in hotels. So you're, you know, in these big hotel spaces with lots of other people trying to get jobs. So there's a heightened sense of emotion and you do, you get your heart set on certain countries or certain schools, and, and sometimes that doesn't pan out. And I don't know of any other career in the world where you, you basically have to hand in your resignation fairly early in the year and then be jobless for a while until you get to one of these job fairs and, and you've got to make a decision. And sometimes the decision is, is wide open for you and sometimes it's not so wide open. So it's definitely not for the faint of heart. And I think something to bear in mind too, is that the first few times you do it are going to be harder because the less experience you have in the international circuit, it's just the way it is. You know, the more experienced you are, the more schools want you. So it does take time for you to feel more confident. And I think something for people to really think about too is certain areas of the world have schools that have what we would consider a very good package. And Some areas of the world have schools that don't have a great package, but they're wonderful places to live and work. And so you have to think about what is your primary focus in this move? Are you looking for a better package monetarily? Are you looking for experiencing a culture in a certain country? Are you looking just for experience? Is it the school philosophy you really want? Because it's very rare you'd actually get everything. And I I think sometimes it's easy to... 
I don't know, feel a little bit disheartened when you don't get everything on your checklist, but that's, that's not reality. Mm, yeah. I think sometimes maybe certainly our experience at NIST, it checked all of the boxes, wasn't it? Like great package, great school, great location, but certainly I think that's the exception rather than the rule. So you got offered the job in Thailand and what was it like moving to Thailand? Because of course you were quite settled in Spain. You had done this move. Mm. Did the school like help you get settled in? Like how did you Mm -hmm. find a place? Like what about all of those things that you need Mm. to do to sort of get settled in a place when you don't speak the language? Yeah. You don't know the culture. You've never even been there before. Yeah, exactly. And so like moving to Spain was was fairly easy, even though the school didn't necessarily provide as many services. He, he could get us through anything we needed to. So moving to um, Thailand was a huge adventure. Neither of us had, had traveled in Asia at all before, never even been on holiday to Thailand. So we had worked in Spain with some friends who'd worked in the school in Thailand and they were really encouraging us to go. They'd been at NIST for eight years and were telling us what a great school it is and we're young teachers with a lot of energy. We need to go there and and really go for it. So we were lucky enough to get those jobs. And the school in Thailand was incredibly helpful. Um, Now, this is not the case for all schools because a school can only help in terms of their capacity to help you. So the school in Thailand was very large. It was very well resourced. And because, you know, let's face it, labor is cheap in Thailand. So that's one thing I've come to learn is that while my life in Thailand was very blessed and very easy and very supported, it actually comes at a cost. It's because the locals are not paid so well. And so it made my standard of living great. But in actuality, it's because labor is so cheap. Mm. So They did everything for us. They sorted out our visas. They helped pay the shipping costs. So if you're moving between schools, you will essentially get a double benefit. So the school you're leaving will pay your flights to leave and pay your shipping to leave. And then the school that you're going to will pay your flights to arrive and your shipping to arrive. So that's really helpful because actually, usually, you know, the cost of flights and shipping are so huge you kind of need those two amounts. So one thing that I'll be very honest, we we were in debt at the end of our time in Spain. And I think the school in Thailand had asked us to book our flights and they were going to reimburse us. We didn't even have the money to buy our flights to Thailand. I think they were just over a thousand pounds at that point. And so I had to email them and say, I'm really sorry, but we don't have that money. And so they were great and they were accommodating and said, okay, so we'll, we'll just pay them for you. I think the most stressful thing, we didn't have children at the time. It was just the two of us. And we were both in our, gosh, I think mid twenties, mid to late twenties. So didn't really have many stresses, but we did have two dogs and they were dogs that we had rescued in Spain from when they were very young and we loved them very dearly. And, and I had no experience moving pets at all. I didn't grow up in a family that had pets and we certainly didn't travel around the world at that point. So that was unnerving to me. And luckily the vet we had in Spain was really helpful. One thing to, and I know you know this all too well, is that the regulations for exporting an animal 
from one country and the regulations of importing an animal in another country don't always match up. So, for example, the Thai governments may have wanted certain paperwork that the Spanish government don't provide. So it's finding that middle ground. And unfortunately, sometimes there's a little bit of fudging and just hoping and this is going to be okay to move your animals. I do remember being kind of shocked that they were charged as excess baggage on the on the aeroplane. And, you know, we had to buy them their crates and, and all of those things. And I was very worried. One of our dogs, who she sadly passed away last year, but she was a very nervous dog. And so I remember giving her some dog bark remedies before the flight. And I, I also distinctly remember we had to transfer in Frankfurt. So we flew from Malaga to Frankfurt with the dogs and then Frankfurt to Bangkok. And I remember seeing them in Frankfurt getting moved from one plane to the other. And I was, you know kind of emotional, checking they were okay. So I could see them coming down the conveyor belt. It was just so fortuitous that at the time I was in the airport and I happened to look and see them come down and I could see our little dog Casper sat up in his crate and I thought, well, he's okay. <laughs> so yeah, that was kind of emotional. But once we arrived, and this is a while ago now, so we arrived in Thailand in 2008, but they, I mean, the way they provide services may have changed, but I don't think the services will have changed very much. So you um, primarily get picked up at the airport when you arrive by a representative of your school. So when we arrived, there was a minivan waiting to pick us up and the dogs and our luggage. And I think it was the one of the heads of school picked us up and they drove us around. And because, oh, I remember now, normally you'd get put up in a hotel. Well, in this situation, every school is different. But in, in our current situation, we you know, most people were put up in a hotel for about two weeks, which would give them time to find an apartment and get themselves up, self set up. We couldn't do that because we had the dogs. So luckily, yeah, no dog friendly hotels in uh, no, Thailand, really. Not like not like North America. Not. <laughs> no. So we were again, and this is the. I'm going to keep coming back to community because as soon as you're in the international circuit, you your community grows very rapidly, and so because we knew some people and the school were really good at putting you in contact with current staff members. We were already communicating with a fellow teacher at the school who was living in a building very close to school. And she helped us like hugely. I mean, I'd never met this woman, but she helped us put a deposit on an apartment and get us moved straight in. So we basically landed with an apartment to go to. And it was such a perfect fit for us. It was very family friendly, dog friendly apartment, very close to school, which a lot of families ended up living in. And we literally landed, moved in and lived there in that apartment building for 12 years. But it was because of her, you know, help. Mm -hmm. And I think anybody that teaches internationally knows how tricky it can be. And so as soon as you need some help, there's always someone there to provide mm. it. So even if the school isn't able to help you, there's always going to be someone who does. And, and of course, if language is an issue, for example, here in Japan, we don't speak Japanese yet. We have little bits. There are locals that we work with that are very kind and caring and, and help you do the things you need to do when you struggle. So I just remember feeling we'd gone on a huge adventure because, yeah, Bangkok's a wild, crazy, amazing place. And it feels like that when you just go on holiday. So having uprooted our whole life and just decided to move there was amazing. But the school literally spent two weeks setting us up. They had a kind of welfare pack for us, which had a kettle and cups and plates and bedding that we could borrow until we got our own. So they spent two weeks orientating you. We had introductions to Thai with some language lessons and cultural lessons. And they had estate agents to help you find apartments if you needed that and all those kinds of things. So they, they, a lot of schools will help you 
to set up your life completely. Yeah. I remember when we arrived at NIST, it was a similar kind of thing and we had cats too. So we couldn't go to the hotel, which was fine. We found a place there. And I had actually lived in Thailand twice before we moved back for my longest stint of time. And I just remember feeling just so good because we had all of this help and support, you know, opening a bank account, a SIM card, even all of these things. And of course, it's very, very kind that the school does that, but also the school is also being pretty smart as well because they understand that moving to a new place is extremely stressful, starting a new job, potentially, if you've got children as well. It's extremely difficult. So it's in the school's best interest to get you settled as quickly as possible so that you can really start focusing on the whole reason why you're there, which is to teach kids. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think schools have struggled. I mean, we have all struggled during the pandemic. And I think a lot of schools have had to change how they support staff when they arrive. For example, when we arrived in Japan in August 2020, we were still picked up by someone from the school, but we had we weren't allowed to use public transport. So we had to fly into Tokyo and then travel six hours down to Nagoya on a sealed bus with toilet transport. We had this mini, very cute Japanese mini toilet van that accompanied us because we couldn't use any public rest stops. And we had to quarantine in our homes. So the school had already organized all our accommodation for us beforehand. But not only that, then members of the administration team for the two weeks of our quarantine had to food shop for us because we weren't allowed out of our homes. So they had to add that onto their load, right, of going around and and shopping and and not just buying food, but, you know, bits of furniture or bedding or whatever it was that you needed. So, yeah, this ever-changing time period has meant that Mm. schools have had to adapt their services for people. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's challenging for sure. So what has it been like professionally for you? Like, how do you feel like you've developed and progressed in your teaching career throughout the time of international school teacher? Do you feel like you have are fulfilled professionally? Definitely. And I, I think that I mentioned before, size of school makes an impact. And I think personally, I'm not saying this is the case for everybody, but for me, Working in small schools allows me to kind of hone my practice, kind of get comfortable in doing what I'm doing and build my practice a little bit. But it was the big schools that actually pushed me the most professionally. And I think that again comes down to money. The bigger the school, the more children paying fees, the more they put back into the teachers. And that's the other thing, actually, that some schools are profit schools and some are non-profits. So I'll come back to that in a minute. I've always worked in not-for-profit schools, so all the money goes back into the school. And so they invest heavily in professional development for teachers. And I was constantly either going away on professional learning trips or having experts come to the school and, and train me. And I feel that there was some of the bigger schools really are trying to be innovative. And so they are pushing the boundaries and, and learning more. So I was definitely in bigger schools, broadening my teaching toolkit and all the skills and, and understanding of curriculum. And then 
coming to a smaller school again, I've been able to share that learning and learn in different areas. So when I started my career, I was a homeroom teacher and I primarily specialized in lower elementary. So depending on which system you're in, kindergarten or year one or grade one, year two, that's kind of my focus area. And I started out as a homeroom teacher. And then as the years went by, I became a grade level coordinator. I managed to work on committees and lead certain areas of the school. And then coming to Japan, I was able to get a job as the coordinator of the Early Learning Center, which is our preschool and kindergarten um, students. And I, I, I loved that very much. And then my role changed so that I'm now the PYP coordinator, which means because we're an IB school, the program in elementary is known as the PYP or primary years program. And I coordinate that curriculum. So I do still do a little tiny bit of teaching, but I'm not a homeroom teacher as such. And I think the experience I gained at all my schools has allowed me to slowly come into leadership roles and really use my experience to, to help students and teachers in different ways. Fantastic. How are the students? Of course, we should not generalize children so much, but how do you find the students in the different schools that you've worked in and maybe compared with at home? Yeah, I mean, when I taught in the UK, I worked in a inner city London school and I loved that experience so much. These, these children were, 99% of them were of Bengali descent. Many of them were speaking English as a second language. At home, they spoke Bengali and, and some of their parents didn't speak English. So that was a really great learning experience for me to learn about children who speak multiple languages and, and how to support parents who don't have English as their primary language and really understanding that we have to honor their cultural backgrounds and the languages they already have because it's not a case of children coming to school because they're empty cups. They're very full cups and we have to make connections to what they're already knowledgeable in and the language skills they already have. So what was most different between teaching those students in the UK compared to the students in international schools was financial. You know, the, the children in London didn't have vast amounts of money. They, you know, they lived in inner city London, their parents were very hardworking and they were just coming to the, the local primary school. Whereas it is a private school, an international school. You do have to pay fees to come. So with that, there's different issues. You know, you have children who have very different life experiences. They have nannies and drivers and several homes and, and, and those things. But at the end of the day, they're still children. They're still learning social skills. They're still learning how to deal with different people from different parts of the world. They're still learning to read. They're still learning to write. They People are people, you know? So even though they come with different experiences, there, there are still so many similarities that it's not too difficult, but it's just learning to deal with different things. You know, how do you support a child who has a lot of support at home in different areas compared to a child that doesn't have as much support? So yeah, I think that's one of the main differences is their experience. Now you do, depending on where you're at, some schools will have a much higher local population than international population. So that's another thing you need to consider and just think about the backgrounds of your children and the, where they're coming from. And it's not always the same. In, in Bangkok, we were actually quite diverse. That's partly because Bangkok is such a major city. And many companies and embassies actually support their employees to allow their children to go to school. So if you're an embassy employer or a certain company employs you, they will pay your child's fees. Whereas some of the other families 
have to be wealthy enough to be able to afford it. So yeah, it, it depends on the area you're, you're in and, and that kind of thing. Great. Okay. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so you ended up staying in Thailand for 12 years. Yes. So were you planning on staying international or even in Thailand for that long when you arrived? I don't think we'd even discussed length of time. You know, when you're in your 20s and you just think, you know, you're going to live forever. You don't need to plan things. I don't even remember discussing it or thinking. And it's the longest I've lived anywhere my whole life. You know, I didn't even live somewhere for 12 years as a child. So Bangkok, you know, quickly takes over your heart and soul. And it's such an easy, fun life there. And then, of course, we had children. So as soon as you have children, your your life flashes before your eyes. And, and you, you wake up one morning and you have a 10-year-old. It still don't feel like it was 12 years. But then you, you look back on the photos and realize, yes, it really was. So I wanted to ask you about that. You had two children while in Thailand. You didn't go back home to give birth or anything like that. So how was that experience, you know, being pregnant in another country, having babies in another country, and then, you know, the first few years going to school, going to school in this kind of environment? How has that been? A wild ride. I think it wasn't too scary at all because I'd seen friends go through it. So I'd had some friends who'd had their children before me in Bangkok. So I'd seen their journey. Bangkok is also a place for those of us who aren't particularly good at learning other languages, but they speak a lot of English. So the hospitals, all the staff speak English and they're some of the best hospitals in the world in Bangkok. People travel all over from all over to come to the ho- the hospitals. I almost said hotel because they are like hotels. Um, they have valet rest- driving. <laughs> exactly. There's restaurants in there. There's all kinds of stuff. And having seen my sister give birth in the UK last year, it's a luxury experience giving birth in Bangkok. The school helps pay your package, you know, and you get to stay in hospital for like four days and you, the nurses are helping you and there's the family can stay in the room with you and you have a little kitchenette and all those things. And, and you know, I had to have two C-sections for different medical reasons. And yeah, I, I never felt concerned. Their facilities are amazing. And now this isn't the case everywhere. I do know that For example, some international teachers who were living and working in Laos, for example, they would have an extended maternity leave and they would come down to Bangkok to have their children in Bangkok and then go back to Laos just because their medical system wasn't as well set up. So, you know, if you are thinking of teaching internationally and having children, you've got to bear that in mind. But you won't be the first person who's done it. So it's not like you're, you're paving a new pathway necessarily. So um, there'll be people with lots of experience to help you with that. We were highly encouraged to have children in Bangkok because of the help. If we'd had them back in the UK, people often struggle with being able to pay for childcare. Not everyone has family to help look after the children and so on. There is very much a nanny culture. Well, most of Southeast Asia, but especially in Thailand. That I found difficult. You know, I, I didn't grow up with a nanny. It feels strange leaving your, your child with essentially a stranger. But I was, I was lucky enough to find some women who were absolutely wonderful and, and I consider part of my family now. So in that respect, it, it was easier than I think it would have been at home because I had support there. But it's also, it can make you feel uncomfortable because there is this whole, and we, I don't think we can ignore it when we talk about international teaching, there is this whole idea of being the expat 
and being the white privileged or white presenting privileged person and not necessarily white either, but the, the, the fact that you're an expatriate and you can afford home help and all those things that come with it. It's easy to be surrounded by people who think very differently from you. And so I was just very lucky that I had a lot of friends who were able to form strong relationships with the people that helped them in their homes and treated them like family rather than as mm. employees as such, even mm. though they are. But I think it's easy for people who follow this international circuit to become very privileged and not consider where they are and, and how they're interacting with people. You know, I've experienced friends being quite rude to local staff when, you know, the service hasn't been up to their standard and experienced people on forums berating their local staff for wanting national holidays off and wanting a pay rise and things like that. And I, it's something to be very mindful of, I think, being aware of your status as a guest in this country and how you treat the people around you. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So your two lovely children, if I understand well, it's part of the package that they are able to go to the school that you work at, right? So how does that work? Um, It very much depends on the school and the country you're in. For example, in Thailand, we didn't have to pay anything. Our children were just part of the package because we worked there. They went to the school for free, essentially, which is very, very lucky, but is not actually as common as I thought. Many schools in Europe, if you choose to go and work in Europe, and even here in Japan, you have to pay tax. So while I don't necessarily have to pay the fees, I have to pay the tax on potential fees. And that can be quite crippling for some, because even though we get paid relatively well, although that again depends on each school, the tax can be pretty large. And so there are certain things that schools have in place. For example, the school I'm at now has a scholarship fund. So we apply for the scholarship and we either get it or we don't. And that helps us pay for the taxes that we have to pay. I think that's actually becoming more common. And I think there's also some schools have limits. So for example, you might have two children that are free, but if you have a third child, you have to pay full for that. Some schools allow three children, but I think that's quite rare. So again, that's something that you can look up on those sites, like Search Associates, they can tell you the kind of package that schools will give you for your children. Great. All right. So What would you say have been the greatest benefits and the greatest challenges of being on the international teaching circuit? It's a big question. Um, It's a huge one. And it's changed so much just in the last two years. So some of the greatest opportunities are the colleagues that I have met. I have met people and now have good friends from Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Uzbekistan, South America, all over the world. And I would never have met those people had I stayed in the UK necessarily. So just opening my world, my friendships to people that are so diverse has been so wonderful. And then the opportunity to travel. I don't think I could have in my wildest dreams imagined that I'd have been able to take my whole family down to South Africa or that my husband and I could take uh, just the two of us go to Bhutan trekking while my wonderful nanny stayed with my children for a week. And these are these are holidays that 
my children, even though they were young, they still talk about, you know, these experiences are going to stay with them forever. They, the fact that they've experienced Thai festivals year on year and feel so connected to it. The fact that they're learning to speak Japanese now and, you know, my daughter can write sentences in Japanese, it blows my mind. So the experiences we've had as a family have been wonderful. So that's all really great stuff. What is really hard is being away from family. And I, we didn't really feel that impact until the pandemic. So because we were always able to travel home during holidays, we saw family every year, sometimes twice a year. And since we haven't been able to do that, it, it really makes you question being so far away. If something, you know, if pandemic realities are something that are going to come up more frequently in our lives, which unfortunately I think they probably are, it's something we need to really think about. And, and it's had the reverse effect on some people. I know that some people who were at home during the pandemic feel like they haven't seen the world. So, they, you know, now the world is opening up again. They want to get out there. For us, we, we definitely feel the need to get closer to home. And when, and when family is sick or, you know, my sisters are, are currently having children, you really feel the need to go. And, and schools are often very good. They can give you compassionate leave. You know, I was able to leave and check in on my, the health of my mother, who's quite unwell, and, and see the birth of my first nephew. But it, it's, yeah, it's definitely, I think, to be honest, I think for me, that's the biggest challenge. Changing countries is challenging because you have to get used to a whole new way of life, right? And so this move to Japan was definitely more challenging than any other move we did for several reasons. You know, we moved right in the pandemic. It was August 2020. It was probably not the best time to move, but we did it. Um, you didn't have so was, any choice, right? You didn't well, have any job exactly. left in Thailand. <laughs> That's right, because you hand your notice in in the October. So, you know, October 2019, we were thinking, yeah, great, we're going to move next year. And then, you know, things happened. And I think partly because of the pandemic, partly because we were moving from a very big, wealthy school to a much smaller school. And like I said, their ability to support you is different. So we had gone from 12 years of a very well-resourced, very supportive school to one that wasn't. And that's not to say it's not a good school. It's just a very different school. And so your expectations have to change. And that takes a long time. And, and when you're stressed with pandemic, stressed with moving two dogs and two children, and not realizing that I would need to know Japanese so well, had we been in Tokyo, I think it would have been easier. But Nagoya is um, not as developed as, as Tokyo. And so I wish I'd known that I should have started studying Japanese earlier. That's just been more of a challenge. So just learning those things. And, and also, I'm, you know, I have to be very honest. I had a nanny and a cleaner in Bangkok. And I don't have, well, that's a lie. I do have a cleaner in Japan. <laughs> But I can only afford a cleaner to come once or twice a month, whereas I had one all the time in Bangkok, having to work full time, come home late, do all the cooking, all the cleaning. And that, that is reality for many people. And I'm perfectly capable of doing it. I just hadn't done it in so long. And so it created a very stressful situation initially. So I think knowing that your first year anywhere is tricky because you you have to try and establish your community, your connections, your friends. And when it's a pandemic, that's really hard to do because people aren't socializing. That's another thing too that differs between large schools and small schools. 
in a large school, you have a much bigger pool of people to find your friends from. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a smaller school doesn't mean there's not lots of lovely people that you can make friends with, but it's just a smaller pool of people. Yeah. And uh, something we we didn't mention is usually you're asked to sign a contract for two years. And that first year is usually challenging. I mean, yeah. just moving to Canada, my first year was really challenging and I wasn't teaching in a school like like you are. And of course, you were having to do online teaching probably for much of your first year. And it's not something that you do for six months. There's, there's no way that you can... <laughs> get your head around everything and and yeah. and travel and enjoy the place that you're in I I would say probably in the second year you can really feel like you can relax a little bit and yeah. enjoy where you are certainly the first few months extremely stressful <laughs> definitely yeah all right Nina I really want to thank you so much for sharing your experiences about international school teaching for me international school teaching was a really wonderful part of my life and it was so rewarding and I got to meet some amazing people and I really hope that people who are listening to this that know teachers or perhaps are teachers, they might sort of dip their toes into this and hopefully you've given them some inspiration and some really practical steps on how they might do that. So thank you so much. You're so welcome. Before you go, how might people find you on social media and, and what is your website? Well, so I'm, I'm a bit of a, a jack of all trades as, as such. So you can find me on Twitter if you want to think about educational things. So I'm Nina Radcliffe on Twitter. So feel free to follow me there if you want to know teaching things. But on Instagram, I'm actually known as Bua Health and Fitness because I'm also a trained yoga teacher and personal trainer and vegan. So I post all that stuff on my Instagram there. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Nina. Thank you, Bridie. Good to see you. So we hope you enjoyed that episode and we'll check out Nina Radcliffe and follow her on social media. Stay tuned for more episodes, which will help you to get ready to discover this beautiful planet, whether you stay in your local area or go further afield. If you are interested in finding out more about World Vegan Travel and what we do, please check out our website, worldvegantravel.com. And if you like this podcast and want to dig a little deeper into the content we make, you can do that by going to the show notes. Consider subscribing and leaving a review, and we hope you'll join us next time.